Uh, our text is Luke 10, 25 to 37. Uh, please follow along as I read. Behold, a teacher stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's take a moment and pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have the audacity to tell us hard stories. pray you be gracious, Lord Jesus, uh, to work by your Spirit to soften our hearts, to sharpen our minds, help us to hear what you're saying to us, and be gracious to work by your Spirit uh, to make these things real in our hearts. pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I, a number of years ago, I was working at a children's home in Virginia. There was one particular kid there named Will. It's been 15 years. I can break confidentiality now. And uh, Will was a, a big, mountainous, oafish 14-year-old. Uh, really a large kid. And um, really withdrawn and really didn't like anyone. Except for me. It didn't make a bit of sense, actually. I was suspicious that um, he was on the wrong track. There was really no reason he should like me. And uh, so I began to ask questions. And uh, there was a reasonable explanation for this uh, boy's fondness for me. It's that uh, he had heard that I was going to be a missionary. I was going to go and do what I'm doing now in other cultures. And uh, he, having no rubric for understanding what a missionary was, and uh, being raised in a, well, with another sort of bent, uh, misunderstood that as a mercenary. Uh, he thought uh, that I was growing up and going to be leaving this children's home where I was a social worker, uh, to, to go off armed to the teeth to kill people. Um, I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. That's what I wanted to do. And when I, uh, when I explained to him that there was a difference between being a missionary, uh, hopefully, which means loving people, and being a mercenary, killing people, he was a little disappointed. But uh, I think about it now, and I wonder if for lots of people... Um, the, the, the mistake means it's no big deal. Because in the minds of many people, I think, they think about Christianity. Um, don't some of them see Christians? Don't some of you perhaps see Christians as uh, largely um, indifferent to the needs of others, selfish as everybody else, intolerant, loveless, self-occupied? In fact, lots of people make arguments that Christians are perhaps the most immoral people in the world. We're judgmental, we don't care about others. Uh, we're occupied with our rules and self-righteousness, and we don't love anyone. 
And, and so in that case, if that's true, and no doubt it is true for some Christians, uh, it's an accurate description, um, is it not true? Are we not like mercenaries? And uh, the problem is that I, I think it's really easy for us um, as Christians or as people trying, for you, trying to, if you're not a Christian, trying to figure out what Christians are, to, to try and figure out what Christianity is by looking at believers, you can, you can be very confused. Because Christians often tend to obscure, tend to obscure what Christianity is all about. Uh, it's supposed to be about a relationship. Loving God and loving neighbors. That will just jump out of the story today. Uh, we're supposed to be marked by these characteristics. That we relate well to God and to others. That we love uh, selflessly and at great cost. But instead, um, these distinguishing marks are obscured by selfishness, uh, our concerns for uh, what seem to be religious taboos and trifling matters. We're too busy judging others. We're aloof. We're indifferent. Uh, we're concerned about our own self-righteousness. What we're going to see in our text today is that uh, Jesus is going to confront us with the reality that Christianity is inherently relational. Christianity is relational. It's about relationships. And because that's true, we must love our neighbors. So I'm going to move through this uh, somewhat familiar story by talking about three things. What our natural inclination is, how we neglect our neighbors, and then why it's necessary uh, that we love our neighbors. So natural inclination, neglect of your neighbor, and then why it's necessary to love your neighbor, or what is necessary to love your neighbor. Well, our story begins, uh, or this account begins, with a lawyer, uh, uh, an expert in the law, approaching Jesus, and uh, as it says here, putting him to the test. And we begin to see here in, in the first couple of verses what I consider our natural inclination. And, and the first thing that comes quite natural to us, comes quite natural to this man, is suspicion. That we're or by nature suspicious of God and his spokespeople. Uh, this is a man studied uh, in the Old Testament, and he's standing up and he's putting Jesus to the test. It's very interesting what he's doing here. He's actually being very deceptive. Maybe he's not aware of it. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We'll assume he's being deceptive but doesn't know it. Um, because he addresses Jesus with great respect. He calls him teacher. He stands up, which is a signature or a sign of great respect. And yet, we know his motive. He's putting Jesus to the test. He's suspicious that Jesus isn't orthodox enough, right enough, stringent enough, or something. And what he's about to say is really just trying to tease out how Jesus is really wrong. He's suspicious. He thinks he's got this down. He distrusts Jesus. He has an agenda. And uh, I think it's easy for us to all assume that when we go to investigate something, whether you're a Christian investigating science or philosophy or an unbeliever investigating Christianity, that it's really easy to be open-minded in your inquiry. I can do open inquiry. I can be fair and balanced. Uh, No, this is actually much much more our natural inclination. We can't get our own ways. We're deeply suspicious. Perhaps the best honest start is just to admit that you're suspicious. Um, but do you think you know it all? And uh, you're not so sure about this Jesus person. Well, Jesus responds uh, to this question with a question. And what we have is a bunch of questions. And um, this reminds me of uh, something that uh, Woody Allen once wrote in a little skit in which an inquirer asked a rabbi, Rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? The rabbi thinks and pauses, waits a moment, says, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Uh, And this is what Jesus does. He asks questions. And uh, he asks, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers. 
And uh, the man answers well. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and goes on. This is from Deuteronomy. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is from Leviticus. So his, his answer is biblical. It's a good summation of what uh, the Old Testament ethical system is all about. And Jesus says, you answer correctly. Do this and live. So it seems to be going pretty well. Until uh, verse 29, where we get a look into his heart again, and we see another aspect of our natural inclination, which is self-justification. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? True religion, according to Jesus and this man, is about loving God and neighbor. But we can't go very far, even if you understand that, with realizing, actually, that's pretty hard. Love God, love neighbor. Hmm, I've got to find some way to make this easier, more manageable. And that's what he's doing here. He's trying to justify himself, make this... Uh, more palatable, more reasonable, easier to perform. And that's why he asks, who is my neighbor? Um, you can go into this in great detail, but what he's really trying to do is two things. He's trying to clarify something which is very ambiguous and broad. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay? Sounds good. How do I do that? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's wonderful. How? Who? When? What? We want particulars. And so what happened was this whole big tradition of, of uh, oral and written law grew out of this that would tell you how to do everything. And really, that's sort of what we sort of really want. We want to be told what to do, so we don't have to think about it. Just do it naturally. That way we feel good about ourselves when we check it off the list. Instead of having this broad law um, before us, it really challenges our hearts. So we want to codify it. And then what we also want to do is we want to make it more manageable. We want to lower the standard. And uh, that's what he's looking to do here with this question. The main thing I want you to see here, though, in his natural inclination, is uh, that like this man, who gets it right, you can get it right and get it wrong. He has the right answer. He knows the right answer. And yet, his heart's in the wrong place. He's suspicious of Jesus, and he's seeking to justify himself. He has the right answer about what Christianity, about true religion's all about, but he really has no desire to do it. To do it as it's written. To do it as it really places the true demand on his heart. And um, it's important for us to realize this. That Christianity is more, more than, not less than, more than just knowing what's right. Or doing what's right. Ultimately, uh, looking at the text and uh, what the man says religion is about. Loving God and loving others. It's about re- right relating to God. Being in a right relationship with God and with others. And ultimately that's something you can't do perfectly. So, um, hopefully, you, you've seen sort of the difficulty of our natural inclination. Even if you know what's right, you don't always want to do it. In fact, you might not be able to do it. Actually, you can't do it. You can't love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, instead of just pointing that out to him right here at the beginning, uh, and, and just uh, decimating him, instead tells a story. Because uh, stories are subversive, and they have a wonderful way of thinking behind your defense, and uh, planting little ticking time bombs. And then you walk away and it explodes. And it changes you from the inside out. That's what it was. Jesus is probably hoping is going to happen here. Maybe it'll happen to us. That'd be great. Um, why did you tell the story? Because this is the way we learn best. And, uh, and also because I think Jesus has some hard things to say. And we'll see that the story he tells here it takes a lot of courage. So uh, what we see now is a story that's largely about neighborly neglect. Our neighborly neglect. And, and why we tend to neglect our neighbors. 
So in verse 30, we encounter a man uh, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, from Jericho, well, excuse me, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's 17 miles. Pretty much all downhill. Steeply downhill, actually. Uh, from like 2,000 feet over, over um, sea level to like 500 feet below sea level. So it's a pretty precipitous decline over 17 miles. So he's heading downhill, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And that part is also quite true. This stretch of road uh, is so famously dangerous from ancient times um, that it, well, no one questions whether or not this is realistic. The Romans uh, had to build forts along the road to keep bandits away. Until the 19th century, this was still a really common place to get ambushed and beaten by robbers and bandits. Uh, it's just a very interesting desert locale with cliffs where people can hide. And so Jesus telling this story was telling a story people would have been familiar with and said, of course he fell among robbers and got stripped and beaten. And uh, what we encounter here at the end of the story is a man laying on the side of the road, indistinguishable. We don't know who he is. We're never told who he is. He's just a man. What kind of man? Is he Jewish? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Samaritan? Uh, is he a good man? Is he a bad man? We don't know. All we know is he's a man. He's naked. And he's near dead. Meaning he's probably unconscious. Can't speak. Can't make sense of anything. And, uh, and that's what we have here. That's the situation. A number of years ago, uh, Lou and I were driving through West Virginia. And, um, yes, it's very much like the road from Jericho to Jericho. And at 1.30 in the morning, uh, we managed to roll through a number of potholes at about 70 miles an hour and uh, destroyed our car, or at least enough of our car, we could no longer progress safely on our way out of the state. And although it's not as bad as the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's still no place to be. 1.30 in the morning on an interstate in West Virginia far from friends and family. So when it became clear after an hour that no one was going to stop and help us, I began to realize, why would anyone stop and help us? It's 1.30 in the morning in West Virginia. They're scared of us. I mean, anybody, no one on the road at 1.30 wants to stop. Um, and I began to realize, uh, we're in trouble here. Who's going to stop for us? And that's sort of the nature of the deal here. Who's going to stop for someone like this? Ultimately, who stopped for us? Someone who was paid to do it, a professional whose job was to help us. Literally, that's who, the West Virginia stuck at 1.30 in the morning service. I don't know, they, some guy who got out of jail and they taught him how to change tires and give him a truck. And he drove around the state doing this. Thank goodness. So a professional came to help. And what we encounter here in the story is two helping professionals, it seems like. We have a priest and a rabbi. Or, excuse me, a priest and a Levite. It's not a joke, priest and a rabbi. Uh, it's a priest and a Levite. Uh, these are professionals that are religious. They're supposed to be good men. They're here to help, right? And what we see is that uh, these men neglect their ne- neighbor for a number of reasons. And, and the first reason is that they come armed with excuses. The priest comes to the place. Um, going down the road, he sees him and passes by on the other side. We don't really get any detail. We don't know what's going on in his mind. All we know is uh, this priest comes, doesn't draw near, and leaves. Now, to defend the priest, he has some pretty good excuses. His job is in the temple. His job requires uh, sinlessness to the extent he can uh, do so, and cleanliness. He, he can't touch foreigners. He can't touch dead objects, or he can no longer do his job. 
what's clear is that he's actually probably leaving his job. He's probably coming from Jerusalem back to Jericho. And uh, so he's done with this job. And what this, what this would entail, stopping this man, would be drawing near to a man close enough to see, is he a Jew, is he a Gentile, can I help or not? By the time he gets that close, he's probably already ritually unclean. At that point, he would have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem, where he just, as an important official, uh, fulfilled his duty and say, I'm unclean. I'm unclean, and I need to go through the ritual of being cleaned. It would have been seven days, it would have been costly, it would have been humiliating. It would have been humiliating to a man like this. So he passes by. And the Levite has uh, less reasons. He also uh, he should try to strive for sinlessness, ritual uncleanness. And it looks like he actually draws a little closer. It says when he came to the place, it sounds like he actually draws nearer to the man. Maybe he takes a look, tries to figure it out. But he also has reasons, excuses not to stop. He's on his way home. Probably after uh, spending, uh, what happens is these guys served in cycles. They were probably serving in the temple at the same time and going home at the same time. Uh, their time is up. He's ready to go home. He's got family to see and things to do. He's also fearful of uh, becoming unclean. Both of them, out here in the middle of nowhere, this man's beaten half dead. The robbers could be here. They have reason to fear for their lives. And so he passes by as well. And um, so they, they have excuses. Some of them religious excuses. Some of them uh, just cowardly, uh, self-preserving excuses. Well, we also see that along with their excuses, they're also unable to enter in. I I think it's just sort of clear from the text that they lack compassion. They walk by a guy, and all we know at this point, they don't know anything about him. What they see is a human. They just see him. We don't know if he's a Jew, we don't know if he's a Gentile. This is very important for them. Um, Can't have anything to do with the Gentiles or Samaritans. Is this guy a brother? Is he a Jew or not? They don't know. He's just a human. And in his plight, dying, possibly dead on the side of the road, they see this, and it's not enough to move them to actually do something. They're not able to enter in, in their heart, into the sufferings of this individual. They lack compassion. They're hard-hearted. I was watching uh, some basketball recently, and during a timeout, or the game was a terrible blowout. I think that's what it was. It was a terrible blowout. Uh, the commentator started talking about uh, this video that was out a couple years ago about this... Uh, Autistic 17-year-old, his name is Jeremy. You may have seen it. He gets inserted into the fourth quarter. He was the water boy of the team. They put him in the game in the fourth quarter of the last game. He hits like seven three-pointers. Place explodes. Fans rush the crowd. Basically, all the student body loves this kid and joins in the party. And these commentators are like, they're hard, they're sarcastic, they're former players. And they're like 50 and 60 years old. And they're like, one of them said, if you watch that video... And you're not moved to tears. You're a hard-hearted SOB or something like that. I mean, he said something pretty challenging. You're a hard-hearted individual. There's something wrong with you. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Because I was defending myself or like getting choked up every time I watched it. Because I'm, uh, I'm like that. And um, but then I thought about it later. And no doubt there were tons of people watching that, hearing that, that watched that video. And they're like, oh, big deal. So what? Or heard it that day and said, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm hard-hearted? I'm not hard-hearted. What's wrong with you? Stick it. I mean, this happens. There are people that are unable to enter into the pain and suffering and even the joy of others. They're hard-hearted. They lack compassion. I read a study this year that, uh, I'm not trying to pick on you. It's not like uh, you grew up in the best culture for this. 
that uh, college students of this generation are, are quantifiably less compassionate and empathetic than their peers 30 years ago. You just, you don't want to enter into the sufferings of others. It actually goes on to say that you're, you're less able to do so. And they're trying to figure out why. Again, I'm not beating up on you. It's not, again, it's not like you're growing up in this petri dish of compassion here in America um, where you're just catching this out of the atmosphere. It's hard. But they, we see that these people are armed with excuses and they're unable to enter in uh, to the sufferings of their fellow human beings. Well, there's one other reason why uh, they and we tend to neglect our neighbor. And I think it's because they ask the wrong question. Uh, we see it with the, the, the lawyer himself. He asks, who is my neighbor? And let me translate that for you. What he's basically asking is, can you tell me exactly who I need to serve so I can also figure out how little I need to do? What's the least number of people I actually have to love so I can figure out the least amount of responsibilities that I have to do to fulfill my responsibilities? Can you make this as easy and narrow for me as possible? That's what he's actually asking. And what Jesus does in this story, and if you look all the way down at verse 36, it shows it to you. He's like, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, what kind of neighbor are you? You see in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The story he talks about is how you, as a person, become a neighbor. Not who out there is a neighbor that I should love, but am I a neighbor? And these men, Levite, the priest, they're not neighbors. They don't love. That's the point. They don't love they're trying to figure out whether or not I should love this person because he's one of my people. Is he a neighbor? Jesus, he's a human being. Are you, are you a neighbor? Do you love others or not? Well, the question is, for us at this point, uh, who are we neglecting? Well, there's no doubt that we are. The Levite and the priest, they're religious professionals. They know God's word. They care about God's word. They're sincere. They're in the temple regularly offering sacrifices for sin. They're close to the things of God, and yet their hearts are hard to people. They come armed with excuses. They're asking the wrong question. And if you think you're exempt from that, you're wrong. Uh, We, too, neglect other people. And the question is who and why? Uh, What are the excuses that you offer? And no doubt you have lots of excuses. I'm not saying they're not real reasons. The difference between a reason and an excuse. Um... So the excuses might be, uh, and I hear this one very often, I'm too busy. I know you're busy. Everybody's busy. What's different? Um, are your duties and your responsibilities, which are significant, you should be faithful to them, are they more important than the people around you? Or those people are too different. They're too different. Uh, they're just not like me. Um, we don't listen to the same music. You don't have the same interests. Goodness gracious, people, you live on the same campus. I mean, you, you, you share space together. I mean, you're not that different. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to beat up on you, but it's really easy to make a big deal out of the differences. Uh, they have their own friends. They have their own friends. They don't need me. And so on. It's really easy for us to come up with a number of excuses why we don't move toward people and why we're unable to enter into their sufferings. Some of you see this in the people around you. It could be people close to you. You see their suffering. You see, they're hurting. Uh, perhaps you think they deserve it because they're making foolish decisions and they should know better. You do foolish things all the time that you should know better and reap the consequences. And you don't want people to treat you like that. 
So are you willing to draw close in compassion and love people? Or are you cold-hearted to the people around you? Um, or perhaps you're asking the wrong question. Like them, you're asking, who is my neighbor? And you're looking for the people that you should love. I think I'll love you, and I'll love you, because I like, I like you. And you're funny, and you're quirky and culturally sophisticated like me. I'll love you, too. And you're sort of cute, because I like you. But you, especially you, roommate, and you, sweet mates, and you, classmates, and you, because you're annoying and you talk too much, and you, because you're really messed up and broken, you're not my neighbor. It's really easy for us to do that, to write people off, to choose who our neighbor is, and to wait for them to make the first move. I'm here, I'm open, come and love me and I'll love you back. My friends, I'm not beating you up, I'm just simply saying, this is what Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, it's your responsibility, it should be a distinguishing mark of you, that you move out in love to others. You can't wait for other people to make the first move. You're the mature one here. You should love others well. It's going to be awkward. Yes. (laughs) Of course it's going to be awkward. It's going to be difficult. Yes, of course. It's going to be difficult. Responsibility always entails difficulty and uh, awkwardness. And that's just the way it is. But uh, it's also what we're called to do. And it's because we see others in need and we move to meet it. If we don't, uh, we're like the priest and Levite. Actually, we're like the robbers. Uh, The priest and Levite are just finishing what the robber started. They left the man half dead. These guys are finishing the process by neglect. And we let people continue to wallow and live in their sin and their selfishness and their sickness and their sadness and their depression and their loneliness. Um, as Christians, we're called to reverse the effects of the fall. To enter into their brokenness and point them to Jesus and draw near to them and show them what it looks like and love them more. Well, that's why we neglect and how we neglect uh, to love our neighbor. Let's talk for just a moment about the necessity of neighborly love. Uh, why it's necessary and what we need to love others well. The question really is, how do we love others? How do we love our neighbors? And we see this in the Samaritan, starting in verse 33, a Samaritan. Uh, this is very interesting. What the, what the crowd was expecting at this point is, uh, priest, Levite, we're moving down the pecking order of, of social importance. The next person should be a layman. You, the old person, a Jew. A normal Joe. He's going to be the hero that comes by and saves us, right? It's a normal Joe. And, and Jesus springs this nasty trap and says, a Samaritan. Promptly at which everyone in the crowd spits on the ground and picks up rocks ready to stone them. I know that shows what happened, but very likely it wouldn't surprise me. This uh, little quote here sort of sums up what Jews saw the Samaritans. The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues. A petition was daily offered up praying God the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. Let me translate for you. Every single day in the synagogues, Jews prayed Samaritans would go to hell. Okay? That's the translation. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story about what it means to be a neighbor. A Samaritan, traveling the road at great personal cost and risk of his own life, stops. He comes to the place, he sees him, and he has compassion. The others saw the same thing he sees. Yet he is moved. By compassion. And that's the first thing we see about what's necessary for loving your neighbor is compassion. Um, he saw what they saw, but he saw differently. And he was moved. The, the Greek word for, and I'll never bring up Greek words, but this is a cool one. It actually sounds like what it is. The word is phlognizomai. It's this big, guttural, mushy explosion. 
That's basically what? Compassion is and greed. It's this inner turmoil bursting forth deep in your soul that just cries out for action. And uh, that's what we see. This man is marked by compassion and he moves. He cares. In verse 34, he went, bound up his wounds. The Levite could have done this. The Levite didn't have much, but he could have given first aid. So he does what the Levite didn't do. He goes, binds up his wounds, pours on oil and wine, sets him on his own animal. The priest could have done this. The priest was wealthy. He had animals. Uh, he took them on his own animal, which means he had to walk the rest of the way, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He cares. He does what others fail to do. He addresses his needs at his own cost. And then lastly, we see that it's costly. Verse 34 shows that. Verse 35 shows that. And the next day, he took out to Denaro. The next day. That means he walked this guy to a hotel. Then... Spent the night with him. Spent the night with him, and the next morning said, I have to leave, but here's two days' money to take care of him. When I come back, I'll pay you more if need be. Uh, and so we see here the cost involved time, effort, uh, his own money, risk, uh, risk being beat up by the bandits, risk being beat up by Jews that pass by him, that he might be carrying a Jew. Uh, and, and lastly, and, and you don't understand this unless you understand the culture of the time, and even now, uh, retaliation. Retaliation by the guy's own family. Because if this is a Jew, and he marches him back to a home, and it seems like this good Samaritan is that kind of guy, I just want to carry you to the end. I'll actually figure out where you belong and take you home. It's very likely, not just possible, but very likely he would take him to that village and say, got your boy back home. And they would say, what happened to him? It was you, wasn't it? This happens all the time. It still happens in the Middle East. When you lack and you lack an aggressor, you make one up. The nearest possible person. You're my enemy. You must have done this. You don't believe me? I mean, this is... This is a Palestinian carrying an Israeli bandaged up into his village and saying, this happened. And in the midst of the fury and the hatred of hundreds of years of turmoil, saying, you did this. And taking it out on him unjustly. He was willing, at great cost to his own reputation, even his own life, to care for this person. And this is where someone like Sigmund Freud could reasonably say something like this, that loving your neighbor is neither desirable or possible. We would add or rational. I mean, you look at the cost, how hard this is, why in the world would you want to do this? Another person writing about the same time as Freud, but from a different perspective, wrote this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. In that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. But we see in the Samaritan something different. Someone that loves well, shows compassion, he cares at great cost. So, the challenge for you, friends, and this is something I don't often say as a pastor, I want you to go do it. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, go love people. Go love them. This is not an option, by the way. It's not an option. This is... This is not the 202 level of Christianity. This is Christianity 101. By the way, all things in Christianity tend to be pretty hard. The lucky thing is you don't have to die for yourself. That's the good thing. Um, other than that, it's all 
sort of hard. It demands all of you. Uh, it's necessary, it's difficult, but there's no alternative that's allowed. So does love for your neighbor describe you? Does it define you? When people look at you and think about you, even unbelievers, even people outside the church, they say, that's someone that loves people. If you're here tonight as a non-Christian, you're struggling with this and saying, well, yeah, you're right. Christians I know don't love very well, but sometimes they do. I don't understand. I I do want to be clear with you if you're here as a non-Christian. This is not the way you become a Christian. You don't love people into heaven. You don't love your way to God or love people so good that God's actually happy with you and okay with you. That's not the way it works here. Instead, these are characteristics that mark you if you know the love of God. I'll give you some practical help. I don't want to say go love people or not help you. Practical help. One, don't just pray for people. Pray for people. Please pray for people. But don't just pray for them. How about you do this? Pray for yourself to love them. It's really easy to pray for people. And that's good. But then we stop and our assumption is, God, please do everything so I don't have to do anything. Instead, follow that prayer for that person with, Lord Jesus, help me to love that person sacrificially and move toward them like you move toward me. And then think, really think. Exert your brain and your heart, thinking creatively like you do about everything else in the world, really, about your school and about your recreation for sure, uh, about how to love this person, how to pursue them, what to invite them to. Um, If you need to say you're sorry, say you're sorry. If you need to invite them to something, invite them to something. Listen to their story. Spend your time and resources with them. And in this way, in this way, now I would encourage you if you're an unbeliever, not sure about all this, try that. Seriously, try to love other people well. And Christians, you do this too. And what it will do is it will push you to the end, and you will come to the conclusion, I can't do this. I do not love people well. And frankly, of the two things that uh, the lawyer says, this is the easy one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the easier of the two. You can't do the easy one. You can't justify yourself. The lawyer asks, how do I have eternal life? How do I have life and love? You can't do it. There's nothing you can do. And so how do we come to have this love for God and others? How does it come to characterize us? And it's in Jesus. It's a great parable. It's a wonderful story. I read a bunch of commentaries on it. You would think it's so simple. Everyone knows it. Why read commentaries? Because there's a great deal of debate about where Jesus is in this story. Is Jesus a Samaritan? Is Jesus the beaten up guy? Who is Jesus? Jesus is telling a story. (laughs) And what's more interesting to me is where Jesus is going. If you have a red letter Bible and you probably don't have it with you, uh, in chapter 10, it's full of letters. And you go back to like the last time, there's a lot of black letters, you know, where things are just happening. And this is what it says. When the Jays drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, this is all in the context of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. And, and the words that are used are a fixed determination. I am heading to that city to die, and nothing will stop me. This happens verses before the story. Where is Jesus in the story? He's on his way to die. He's on his way to die for people that don't love others well. He's on his way to die for people like you that don't love other people well. And when you think about that and contemplate that, that will move you to love God and to love others well. And when you look at Jesus and study his life, you'll see what it looks like. If you want to know what it means to love others well, 
I don't even know how to start. I really want to love people? I really do. I just don't know how to do it. Well, then study the life of Jesus. Look what he does. Look how he does it. You'll have an example. You'll be encouraged by him, enabled by him, because he loves you. And he'll show you how to do it. I just read this story a couple months ago um, about a JV girls softball game. I don't read it. I don't follow this on Sports Illustrated. I follow all kinds of sports, but I don't follow JV girls softball games. But this one was pretty cool. <clears throat> Happened in Indianapolis. And it was a game between Rock Halley Academy and Marshall Community High School. Uh, one was a sort of prestigious private school. The other was an inner city school. And after the first inning, the score was about 37 to nothing. Marshall had walked nine batters in the first inning. They bought five balls, two bats, no cleats. Their coaches didn't know where to stand. The coaches had never coached before. The players had never played a single game. Uh, this was their first softball game ever as a school. They didn't know how to do anything. And uh, in the midst of this beatdown, uh, Ron Kelly did something strange. They approached the ref, the umpire, and said, we would like to forfeit. Because this is what they wanted to do. They realized if we forfeit, we can spend the next hour and a half teaching these kids how to play. Um, Shouldn't get so took up about JD girls softball. Anyway, uh, Ron Kelly had not lost a game in two and a half years. Uh, all they did was win. But they recognized this wonderful opportunity to teach other people how to play. And the girls from Marshall, it was their first game. They didn't know any better. They're like, we'll get beat by 100 nothing. We don't care. We'll just take your beating. Uh, but then they realized the other team was willing to forfeit for us. Let us lose this one so we might learn. And, and so what happened is they forfeited the game. And uh, then madness broke out. As girls just grabbed girls and went out and learned how to play. They're tossing the ball. They're learning how to slide. The coaches were teaching the other team how to coach. Like, coach, this is where you need to stand. This is what you need to do. This is how you make a lineup. And it was so beautiful and engaging that the umpires who had the night off stayed to watch. It's amazing. Well, it's just a game. But in the game, I think we have a portrait of the gospel. And what we have here, we have a portrait of what it looks like to be loved. If someone is willing to forfeit their life. Uh, Jesus is up. <laughs> He's the only winner in this game. He's the only winner. He gladly loses for your sake. Uh, we're down. We don't know how to love. Or we don't know how to live. We don't know how to play. And, and Jesus says, I will forfeit it all. And then I'll give myself for you. You win the game. You get his perfect righteousness. You get his record. You win the game. I'll give you my win. And then I'll teach you how to play. I'll teach you how to love. And the question for you is, you know, are you willing to give up? Are you willing to recognize you're down 100 to nothing and you don't know how to live? So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He'll give you the win. He gives his life for you. He forfeits it for you. And he teaches you how to love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you.